You may be seated. Would you turn to Revelation 21? We'll read a few different sections of this amazing passage. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be their God. Now jump down to verse 9. One of the seven angels who had seven, the seven bulls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And He carried me away in the Spirit to a mountain great and high. And He showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. He measured its wall and it was 144 cubits in thick by man's measurement, which the angel was using. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. 
They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. What I'd like to do this morning is be your tour guide for a place I've never been. Okay? But fortunately, we have the Bible. This is good. So I want you to imagine you have arrived, but you're not at the gates. You're actually at a mountaintop. Be careful, don't fall. But imagine it's like, you know, like when you're taking one of those road trips and you stop because there's a scenic overlook and the kids say, no, and dad says, yes, we're going to look, you know. And, and you get out and, and you stand and you can see across the ways, usually that's a scenic overlook, and, and you can see however far you can see, but it's a beautiful, beautiful view. And so we're going to stand on a mountaintop with Daniel and take a tour of heaven, take a tour of the New Jerusalem. And we're going to start, in a strange way maybe, by taking Ezekiel's hand as we do this. Can we pull up the Ezekiel passage, the very first one on there? Ezekiel 40, verse 2. In the visions of God, he took me to the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain on whose south side were some buildings that looked like a city. So when Ezekiel was, was shown Jerusalem, when, when he was seeing in his visions he was taken to a high mountain so he could see from afar off. And we see in Revelation that John does the same thing. So, so here's what I'm getting at. Right at, the, right at the beginning, I need to tell you this. Much of what you see in Revelation 21 and 22 is out of the Old Testament. It, I mean, there's some new material here, but a lot of it is straight out of the Old Testament. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a look at what the Old Testament says, because I think we need to understand how would an how would a person in the first century who read Revelation, how would they have understood this vision? What would they have been thinking? And if we can understand what they were thinking, we can understand what's really going on as John sees this. So, I'm going to try to strike a balance between looking at this literally, but also saying there's a figurative sense of this. Like John is seeing what he's seeing, and there's a reason he sees what he sees, but we need to interpret what he's seeing. Okay? So, we're on the mountaintop right now. We're with John, just like Ezekiel. We're taking their hands, and we're seeing what they see. What are they seeing? Well, number two, which is actually the second stop on the tour now, we're seeing this from above. So, so the new Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven from God. It's the new Jerusalem, which means there was an old Jerusalem, and that one's gone, and, and here's the new one, and it, it's coming down. And the reason it's coming down, I believe, is nobody can mistake this was not built by people. That The skyscrapers were not built by construction companies. Whatever this city is, it was not made by human beings. It was made by God. God did this, so of course it's coming down. And what we see is there's a resurrected earth, and then there, there, there's a collision of heaven and earth. This is where God now is. This is where his throne is now. God made this. Maybe you think back to Daniel when, uh, when Daniel was interpreting the king's visions, and, and the king had a, had a vision of this rock that wasn't made by human hands, but it came out of a mountain. There's that idea again, we didn't build this. God built this. Number three. So on the tour, it'll be noted that the city looks a lot like a bride. Now that's a simile, 
Because some people have read this and said, well, that means the, the New Jerusalem is the church. It is the people of God. But I think it's, it's a simile. It's a way of talking. It's dressed like a bride. So, so God made this city. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And he's preparing this place. It, it's a glorious gift. That's what it is. It's a glorious gift from God. He prepared it all very, very carefully. Now look at Isaiah 52.1. Uh, Isaiah would have said it like this. Awake, awake, O Zion. Clothe yourself with strength. Put on your garments of splendor. O Jerusalem, the holy city, the uncircumcised and defiled will not enter you again. So again, the, 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 anyone that walks into this city is in the book of life. There's nothing unclean. But it's a city, as you can see, that's dressed and ready to be inhabited. And God designed it. God is the architect of this city. And it says it's like a bride. So if you think back to your wedding day and, and, and you see, and again, uh, you women don't know what, what us men feel when we're standing at the front of the church and the doors open and, and, and you start walking down. But, but you look at this beautiful person dressed in white coming towards you and you realize she's there for me. And, and, and you know you don't deserve that, but this is an amazing gift. This person wants to spend a lifetime with me? And that's what you see. And so God has made this city and prepared it, and it's beautiful, and it's for you. He made it for you. Okay, thirdly on the tour, uh, or actually are we uh, fifth? Uh, yeah, fourthly, there we are. Fourthly, let's talk about dimensions, okay? So uh, the angel gets out a measuring rod and, and, and is measuring the city. And, and you've got to measure things because uh, it, it kind of it shows you know, boundaries and it shows that there, there is definite, like this is a real thing. You can measure it. But, but this city is enormous. Now, we can come back to this fourth point again, but let's pull up 1 Kings. In 1 Kings, you've got uh, the temple, uh, Solomon's temple. And in the temple, there is a sanctuary. The sanctuary is 20 cubits long, 20 wide, and 20 high. You geometry students, do you know what that is? It's a cube. I heard it, but I didn't hear any young people say it. Um, it's, a, it's a cube, okay? All right? So the holy place in the temple was a perfect cube. Now what do we have here in Revelation as they measure it, what we see is it is a perfect cube. It says in verse uh, 16, he measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia. You know what that is in miles? About 1,400 miles. So go back to point four. 1,400 miles in a cube. This is a gigantic holy place. Okay? That's what it is. So if you were looking at the mountain and you're seeing this cube coming down, I used to see pictures of like people trying to like draw this or paint it, and, and it was like a big cube coming down. I thought, that's really weird. But, but it wouldn't have been weird to an ancient person. They would have said, that reminds me of the temple. That reminds me of the holy place. Oh, yeah, this whole city is a gigantic holy place. What do you do when you go into the holy place in the temple? You meet with God. How often can you go in there to the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is? You get to go in there like once a year. But now it's every day. 
you get to be with the Lord every day in this gigantic holy place. Now, as you think about this, the immensity should impress you because you can see that the walls are 1,400 miles high. I mean, I mean, just consider the size. Now, 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 stay with me here because we don't think of cities in terms of walls. Okay, like, like we're Americans, for goodness sake. We live in the 21st century. There's no wall around three lakes. We don't have invaders trying to get in. We're okay. But an ancient person would never think of a city without a wall. Okay? This was written to communicate something to an ancient person. This is a city of cities. There's no city like this. I don't care how great your city is, it's not as great as this one. 1,400 miles high. Think about... Uh, think about the Tower of Babel. How high do you think they got before God confused their language? You know, those people in the Old Testament that said, we're going to build a tower to the heavens. Nothing can stop us. And in their pride, God said, I'll just confuse the languages. I mean, how high do you think they got? 500 feet? 1,000 feet? Whatever it was, it wasn't anywhere near a mile or 1,400 miles. There's no way. This is a city like none other, and it's your city, and it's my city. You think about Mount Everest and having to wear oxygen when you get that high. Could you imagine being at the top of the walls, 1,400 miles high? Unbelievable. But this is what God has given. And again, I'll just remind you, it's, it's got walls not to remind the people of Minneapolis or Chicago, it's a great city, it's to remind people of Rome and Jerusalem. People who have city walls need to know this city has got walls. Okay. Um, fifthly, fifth stop on the tour. It's got 12 gates and 12 foundations. Now, the gates are made of pearl, and, and, and there's all these foundations with different precious stones. But he names the, uh, the gates after the 12 tribes of Israel. We can pull up the verse I think I've got for that. Uh, Isaiah. Uh, yeah, go to Isaiah. Maybe, maybe it's there. There it is. Isaiah 54, 12. I'll make your battlements of rubies, your gates of sparkling jewels, and all your walls of precious stones. So, so this city is made of precious stones, but, but I think the point we need to get here is that this city is named after, the gates are named after the 12 tribes of Israel, the foundations of the walls are named after the 12 apostles. Who do you relate to more? The 12 tribes or the 12 apostles? Probably most of us would relate to the 12 apostles because they're like the foundation of the church, the guys that follow Jesus. You know, we know about the 12 tribes, but we don't usually identify ourselves with the 12 tribes. I don't know about, a lot about Issachar. I don't know a lot about Zebulun. I, I, I just don't know. But I do know about Peter, James, and John. They're my guys, you know. They're like, they're like writers, and, and they were Jesus, and they made mistakes, and I, I kind of relate to them. Who are the people of God? If we can go back to point five again. Who then are the people of God? And I think the point here is we all are. Israel, the church, we're all God's people and we're all going to be there together. All of us living together. And it's not going to be 
I'm a Jewish person. I get special treatment. I'm one of, I'm one of God's chosen people. Or it's not going to be, well, I'm part of the church. I heard about Jesus and I gave my life to him. Did you do that? You know, It's not going to be like that. There's not going to be that friction. It's just going to be, we're all God's people. Twelve tribes, twelve apostles. Name the city after them. The, the gates and the foundations. Were, it's all for us. Number six. Let's talk about the stones for a second. That'd probably be important, right? Uh, I, I think a lot of times when we talk about gold and precious stones and gold that's clear as crystal, you know, you get this impression there's wealth everywhere, and, and I understand that. But I think there's a bigger point here. When, when you hear about the sapphire and the jasper and the and the gold, you should be thinking this is a holy place. I think wealth is not the point. I mean, I'm sure it's a point. I know these things are hard to come by and to have gates made of pearl. Yeah, that, that's amazing. But I don't think it's the point. I think the point is this is a holy place. God is holy. He's different. He's set apart. There's nobody like Him. And so He chooses rare and precious stones to symbolize how rare and precious He is. And it shines. And it's beautiful. But, but it's only a reflected beauty because, because He's glorious. He's the most beautiful. Would you rather stare at a sapphire or stare at Jesus? You know, it, it, It's just an image of, just a reflection of who He is. I don't think wealth is the point. Even though there's, there will certainly be wealth there. I do think... It is uh, different, if we can pull the Revelation 17.4 up. I do think it stands in direct contrast to the wealth of Babylon. Now, in Revelation, Babylon just stands for the world, the system of the world, the way the world works, as, as dark and immoral and uh, sinful as it is. There's a woman dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. So there are precious stones in the world. In fact, we know the world fights over, over diamonds. I mean, we, some people would kill over these things. But, but in heaven, they're just a reflection of beauty. They're not something to be hoarded or held over against people. They're just there to show how amazing our God is for making them. And instead of this passage, this woman is called the great prostitute or the great harlot. Now, compare that to what's the new Jerusalem? Like a bride. And so we're reminded once again, we, li- we live in a, a world system that is unfaithful to God. The, the way economies work, the way governments work, yes, they're all underneath God, but they work in a way that doesn't glorify God a lot. But we're going to live in the New Jerusalem that's like a bride. Perfectly prepared. Perfectly working to honor the Lord. Next stop on the tour. Number seven, there's gates on every side of this city. Now, I think I have a verse to go with this. Can we pull up Ezekiel? Uh, Here's the gates in Ezekiel. The gates of the city will be named after the tribes of Israel. Three gates on the north side will be the gate of Reuben, Judah, and the gate of Levi. I know you're really glad Levi didn't get left out of this. Now, you don't think about them too much, do you? I just proved my point earlier. But um, if we go back to the point again, um, 
gates on every side. In, in a Roman city, you'd usually have three gates on one side of the city, and that's it. Three will do it. Now you've got three gates on the north, the south, the east, and the west. There's gates on every side. I think the idea is people are welcome from every direction, every nation. You're all welcome here. And that's good news because oftentimes in the church, or people that walk into the church, they feel like, if you knew my past, you know I shouldn't be in heaven. Yes, you should. The gates are open from every single direction. No matter what your background is, no matter what you've done, no matter where you lived. If anyone thinks Christianity is an American thing, you've got to put that out of your mind. It's from every single direction. If you think you've done too much bad, you've got to put that out of your mind. It's people coming from every direction. All the gates are open. Everybody is invited. But the only ones that come in are the ones in the Lamb's Book of Life. But the gates are truly open. Let's talk, let's say one more thing about these gates. Number eight. The gates are open at all times. Having lived in Chicago four years, and some of you know this because you've lived down there, you've been down there, you just have to have an awareness of where you're at, what you're doing, who's talking to you, what do they want. You're supposed to carry yourself kind of with some confidence and don't look like a target depending on where you're walking. But, but, but you just you just need to be aware of where you're at. But these open gates at all times would tell us this city is completely safe. You don't even have to close the doors. There's no robbers trying to get in. There's no violent people. It's, you, you can walk in and out. You wouldn't have to watch your kids if, if you had kids in that sense, little kids. It's completely and utterly safe. Don't close the gates. There's never night here. When do most things happen? You know, not, I shouldn't say most, but when do a lot of things happen that are sinful? They happen at night under the cover of darkness. Another thing about the gates, it says in Revelation, is it says the nations are coming in those gates. The kings are coming in. And listen, I'll just say it generally, that the city is bustling with activity. There's people in and out. The kings are coming in. The nations are coming in. Do I know what that means? I have no idea. And neither does Alcorn. Okay? Um, (laughs) we, we, We can guess. We, we, we can guess that, that, I mean, it says they're bringing wealth in, and I know there's some Old Testament allusions there to, to bringing wealth into the city, but I don't know what they're all doing. I don't know what we're all doing, but there's people coming and going. And then the gates are always open, and it's always daylight, and, and there's just busyness, there's excitement, there's people, and you can go in any time you want. I don't know what they're doing, but they're doing something. Well, you know they're serving the Lord in some way. The gates are open. The kings are coming in. The nations are coming in. They're doing something in there. It's busy. It's exciting. All right. Are you ready to go into the city? Now, that, that was just us looking from the mountain on the outside. What if we go inside the city? What do we see? Well, in Revelation 22, we see a, a river. We see streams, we see trees, we see a garden. Number nine, this is a garden city. 
it's paradise regained. And it's evidence that God loves cities and gardens. Does God prefer the city dwellers or the people who love to live in the Northwoods? And the answer is both. I've heard you talk. I know how you Northwoods people are, because now I'm part of this whole deal too. I somehow think the Northwoods is better than the city. You know, That's how I feel about it. And that's how you feel about it. You told me that before we moved here. This is the place you'd live if you could live anywhere. It's the Northwoods. It's beautiful. And I know that's a little chip on your shoulder because we don't have any skyscrapers here. We have no smog. And if you've got to wait for 30 seconds to turn, you feel like it must be a, a traffic jam or something, you know? <laughs> you know how you feel about this. Does God prefer city dwellers or people living in the country, people living in beautiful northwoodsy areas? And the answer is both. This is a garden city. Because as soon as you go in the walls, all you see is garden. And it reminds you of Eden. It reminds you of the original creation, regained. We lost paradise and now we get it back. So we can take the chip off our shoulder. And if you hate the idea of living in a city, it'll be okay. It'll be okay. And, uh, you know... It's called the New Jerusalem. Maybe you people that live in the Northwoods would rather call it something else. So it's not so cityish. How about this one? Can we pull up Ezekiel? This is the name of the city. The distance around will be 1,800 cubits, and the name of that city from that time on will be the Lord is there. You're not going to care if there's walls or if there's skyscrapers or if there's anything. You're going to care that the Lord is there. That's the name of the city. The name of the city is the Lord is there. I love it. All right, I know we could linger here. We're going to keep going. The tour has to move on. We don't want to leave you behind. Uh, Number 10. There's water from the throne. And if we could quickly pull up Revelation 4, 6, and then we'll go back to number 10. Also before the throne, this this is when John saw the throne in Revelation chapter 4. From the throne there would look like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and back. There seems to be this sea, this water, that's always around God's throne. So now when you look at it in Revelation 22, you'll see that in 22, it's flowing in 22.1 from the throne of God down the middle of the street of the city. There's water from the throne. So number 10, life and salvation are flowing out to everybody. And I think the idea is you're going to drink from that water. You're going to take a drink of that water. We live in a day when we have designer water. Have you heard of designer water? It's like it's bottled in rare places and it sells for high amounts. The highest priced bottle of water I could find, by the way, let me tell you about it. It's called Hawaiian Deep Sea Water. They get it at 3,000 feet below the surface of the Pacific Ocean. 3,000 feet down. 43 degrees, chilled to perfection. One bottle of it, this Hawaiian Deep Sea Water, will cost you $33.50. That is some good bottled water, you know? I think if someone gave me that water, I don't think I could drink it. I'd just, like, put it on the shelf, you know? Like... I don't know what I would do, but um, 
quiet, deep sea water. Now, now you're going to drink from this water, and, and who knows what you're going to think, but it's going to, it's going to be perfect. It's going to quench all your thirsts. But it's a symbol of your salvation, your life. We all need water to live. And this water will be perfect. And it will sustain you. It's the water of life. Coming straight from the throne. Oh, if we could bottle that, I could make a fortune, you know. Just, man. I got this from the throne of God. Okay. A couple more places and our tour is going to come to a close. Number 11. uh, The tree of life. You knew this had to be here. The the picture of the tree of life is it's on both sides of of the river of water that we just talked about. But I think the idea is it's producing fruit. It's got 12 crops. That's kind of strange for a tree to have 12 crops. But I think the idea is everything humanity lost in Eden is restored forever. It keeps producing fruit. It never stops. The tree never dies. The crops keep coming. Every month it keeps coming. The effects of the curse will be eliminated, they'll be healed forever. Because this tree is going to produce fruit forever. And again, I mean, maybe we are going to go up to the tree and, and take the fruit and eat it and see what it tastes like. But, but the point is still a good one, that everything we lost there, everything that's wrong with the world today, is now healed as symbolized by this tree. Eden is restored uh, can we pull up Ezekiel 47.12? Wouldn't surprise anybody that there was a tree like this there. Here's Ezekiel. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear, because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. I love that. That's just such a cool image. Their fruit will serve for food, and their leaves for healing. That's an amazing tree fed by the streams of water coming from the throne. And it's going to heal us all. Um, One more thing I'll say about this tree. You know, for those of you that ever worry that, that maybe you'll do something stupid in heaven and get kicked out, it's not going to happen. You know, the, the, the tree is there to remind you that's not going to happen. You are healed forever. This world is healed forever. Everything is perfect forever. It's, it's not like one day you're going to be walking along and, and you're going to see Tom over there and Tom's got his big old crown on with like a gazillion jewels, you know, and he's looking in the, in the water, the crystal clear water, admiring himself, and, and you just want to push him in, you know, because it drives you crazy. You're wearing like a ball cap with like a, a quartz on it, you know, <laughs> right? As long as it's got a C for Cubs, it's okay, though. Um, you got the quartz on a ball cap and you see him with the crown and you're like, what? You know, uh, and, and then suddenly that, that before you kicked him in, the angel Gabriel came up and threw you out. You know, it's not going to happen. You're, you're not going to covet. If anything, you're going to see his reward and you're going to say, isn't God amazing for giving him that? Whatever those rewards end up being, you're going to know they're amazing and they come from a loving father and there'll be no jealousy over rewards. And number 12, finally, last stop on the tour. There's one more burst of light. Can I read it for you one more time? Verse 5. There'll be no more night. There'll be no need for light of a lamp or light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, 
and they will reign forever and ever. The last thing John sees in his vision is this burst of light. And then he understands there's not night here anymore. We don't need a sun or a moon. God is light. And this city is full of God and full of light. It's a gigantic holy place. And it shines with His glory. And that's where we will be. One more verse from Isaiah. You need to see this. The sun will no longer be your light by day, nor the brightness of the moon shine on you. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and God will be your glory. Your, the sun, your sun will never set again. Your moon will wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of sorrow will end. Listen. Um, there's coming a time when God's light is shining everywhere and and, and we will see His glory. But we're not there yet. To close this message, to to consider what we will do with all of this, could I invite you to look at Hebrews 11? I'd I'd like to challenge you in a couple ways. You know, we've taken a tour of heaven and we're not there yet. I can say pack your suitcases for a place you've never been, but what does that even look like? What does that mean to prepare for that place? Hebrews 11. One of the incredibly famous passages in the uh, New Testament because it's called the, it, it's the faith chapter, the heroes of the faith. It lists a bunch of people who have lived by faith. And we'll do verse uh, 13. Actually, let's do verse 10. I don't want to miss this. You know, Abraham was called to, let's go with 8 actually. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went. Even though he didn't know where he was going, by faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations. We talked about foundations today whose architect and builder is God. We've talked about that today. And Abraham was looking forward to it. Now verse 13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They didn't receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show they're looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they'd left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. So we spent some time in this city this morning considering it. I leave you with a couple areas of application I'd love to challenge you in based on what Hebrews says here. Number one, we look forward to heaven both seeing it and welcoming it. That's what the verse says. We see it and we welcome it. And it says Abraham saw it and he welcomed it. Enoch saw it and welcomed it. Isaac saw it and welcomed it. Jacob saw it and welcomed it. And you go, they didn't have all the information we have. How in the world did they see it? But somehow in their minds as they were following God, they knew they were going to a new city. And they were looking forward to it. 
We'll talk about backwards in a second. But they were looking forward to it. They saw it and they welcomed it. And I hope, we have a couple weeks to go still, but I hope that if someone talks about heaven, that you can see it. I mean, if Abraham can see it, shouldn't you be able to see it? Abraham didn't have the the Greek New Testament or or the NIV New Testament or the ESV. He didn't carry that around with him, but he could see it. Abel, of Cain and Abel fame, he could see it somehow. Maybe from spending some time, you know, uh, talking to mom and dad about the garden. He could see it. Can you see it? Do you welcome it? Do you think about it? That, that's looking forward to heaven, living in light of heaven. When you think about how heaven is, you try to live like that here. Do you let heaven's values impact you on earth? You should because you pray, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You want things to be as heavenly as possible here. But there's another part of this. Not only are we imagining it and anticipating it and longing for it, we also don't look back. Number two, we, we, we can't look back, the Scripture says. It said if Abraham was looking back, he might have had an opportunity to return to the old country instead of moving towards the new country. Even though Abraham lived in tents and moved around, he never returned to his original home. We don't look backwards on the things we've left behind to follow Christ. We, we can't go back to that anymore. We can only move forward. So here's my question for you. What have you had to leave behind to follow Christ? What's part of the old country for you? What is it? Are you wishing you could go back to that? Or are you moving forward? The sins that you've left behind, do you ever wish you could go back to those? the way you used to live, what you used to have. We, there, all of us leave stuff behind, and that's what God wants for us as we move towards heaven, as we're on this journey to our eternal home. Don't go back. Don't look back. Now, now hear me here. I, I know that in counseling sometimes we look at our past to work through our baggage and things that we've done. That, that's very appropriate. But what I'm saying is we can't dwell on that stuff. We've got places to go. And, and, and even if that means, you know, for some of you, maybe you've left behind wealth. And you've given away large sums of money, and no one knows but God. And you're not using the money for you. You've given it away. Don't look back. Don't long for that. Just keep moving. Some of you have come out of a sinful past that sometimes entices you. You just remember it. There's a vivid memory that comes back and you say, oh, that just feels so good. Whatever that was, that was good, even though it wasn't. Don't. Don't go back to the old country. You're going to the new. Leave it behind. And number three, for those of you that live like this, for those of you that live like this isn't permanent, that this is a temporary place that we live, just a number of years, eternity is still to come. God's not ashamed of you. And to me, that's just an amazing statement. You know, I think of my, my kids, sometimes I have opportunity, I'm not going to tell any stories, don't worry, all right? Sometimes I see my kids, and I see them interacting with other people, and, and I see them talking like we talk at home, 
I see them living out the values we tried to put into them at home. And when I see them living out their values, living out biblical ways of talking and doing life, you know that feeling you get as a parent? That's my son. That's my daughter. Look at them. Go. You know, do it. When I see them persevere, when I see them work hard, and I think, oh, man, it makes me so happy to see it. That's what one of my kids does. That's the right way. And it's like God is looking at us saying, I am, I am so proud. I am not ashamed that you're my son, that you're my daughter. I've got this city made for you, and you live like this world means nothing to you. Awesome. You live, you, you live as if wealth does not concern you. Awesome. You live like sin has no grip on you. Awesome. I am so proud of you. You're my son. You're my daughter. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we long for that place to call home. And we know for now you've given us this place. So please help us live in this place with heaven's values so that you might look at us and feel so happy, so overjoyed, not ashamed, as the writer of Hebrews says, not ashamed to be called my God. Help me help us live like that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand and uh, sing.